Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Valley Beit Midrash would like to thank the Center for Jewish Studies at Arizona State University for their support in bringing Professor Shaul Magid to our community. For more information, please visit jewishstudies.asu.edu. Please enjoy the program. things I want to say, but I also really want to have a conversation because this is an issue that, this is not some kind of arcane, uh, you know, academic topic. This is an issue that matters to all of us. This is an issue to which all of us have been, uh, in effect, has affected all of us in one way or the other. In many cases, uh, an issue that we have personally experienced. Uh, and I think it's, it's something that's, that's very, very important and very topical because it's very much a part of the Jewish, the American Jewish conversation, the question of anti-Semitism. And my, my uh, remarks are not going to really be about the history of anti-Semitism or even necessarily defining anti-Semitism, but really the way anti-Semitism is perceived by American Jews. And I'm speaking about American Jews. Of course, there are Jews around the world who um, it, for, for many of whom anti-Semitism is a much more, uh, a much more proximate issue, um, and of course in Israel as well. But I, I want to specifically focus about, focus about us as American Jews in 2017, where we are as American Jews in 2017, and not only how we perceive anti-Semitism, but how we use anti-Semitism in terms of understanding our place in the country, our place in the world, our place as American Jews who also um, are supporters of the state of Israel in a variety of ways and across a very kind of actually wide spectrum. Um, so I think, I think that I, I hope that, the, that what I have to say will be um, provocative enough to really kind of evoke uh, questions and comments from, from all of you. It's actually somewhat serendipitous that I'm doing this because um, I don't know if any of you are aware, but uh, on tonight, today it's Thursday. On Tuesday evening in New York City, there was a panel uh, at the New School for Social Research uh, on anti-Semitism. And it was a panel that received an incredible amount of press even before the panel happened. There were a number of essays. Tablet Magazine had a feature article. The Forward had an article. Breitbart News actually had an article. Morton Klein, who was the president of the Zionist Organization of America, wrote this article against the panel, against having the panel. And the reason why there were so much press against having the panel is that the panelists were not experts on anti-Semitism. They were not 
historians of anti-Semitism. They, were, they weren't even all Jews. In fact, one of them was the Muslim activist Linda Sassur. They were activists, Jews of color. One of them was a, an executive director of a Jewish organization that is uh, supporting the, the BDS movement, the Boycott, Sanctions, and Device Movement in Israel. And so basically the, the pushback was, how can these people, why can these people, why would the New School for Social Research support a panel on anti-Semitism of people who, in some way, what, they, what these essays were saying, who don't have the right to speak about anti-Semitism? So who has the right to actually speak about anti-Semitism? Is it only people who are affected by anti-Semitism? Is it only Jews? Can non-Jews speak about anti-Semitism? Is it only experts? Is it only historians? This was kind of part of the conversation. There were, I, went, I was at the event itself. There was a large protest, probably about 100 protesters, people protesting and calling for the, for, for the defunding of the New School for Social Research, for holding such an event. I mean, this was, this, was, this was something big. And for those of you who are interested, the panel itself was simulcast and is available on YouTube now. So you can go and watch it. It's, a kind of, it's, it's, worth, do, it's worth doing. My question, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's the interesting kind of proximity to, to my remarks. My, my, the issue that, it, what, int what interests me in terms of how we as American Jews, and when I say we, I don't include all of us as being one thing, we obviously have very different views on the question of what anti-Semitism is, how it's used, what it means, the very volatile question about the difference between or non-difference between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. And in a certain way, that is, is perhaps the thing that, is, that most exercises American Jews today. Right? Because as American Jews today, we don't experience first-tier anti-Semitism the way many people in other parts of the world do. Certainly not the way our parents and grandparents experienced it, for those of, for those of us whose families come from from Europe, either Eastern Europe or Western Europe, and probably don't experience it the same way as Jews who are living in Israel in regards to the kind of the nations around them. So we live in a society where, um, as Walter Hertzberg said in the 1970s, he said this in the 1970s, in America, for all intents and purposes, there is no anti-Semitism. Now, what did he mean by that? He didn't mean that there are no anti-Semites, but there's a difference between the presence of anti-Semites and anti-Semitism. What's the difference? The difference is that there are always going to be anti-Semites. There's going to always be bigots. There are always going to be racists. What makes anti-Semitism operative is the social and political and, in some cases, legal tolerance for it. Right. That's the difference. And it's a big difference. So that if somebody stands up as a politician today, and makes an overt anti-Semitic remark. Right? Now, we can talk about dog whistling and all kinds of other things, but an overt anti-Semitic remark, a politician running for office, I don't care what state he's running for office in, if he makes an overt, uh, overt anti-Semitic remark, that would be, by and large, I think, a death knell for his political or her political candidacy. I would say the same thing about racism, although a little bit less so. Some of you remember in the last election or two elections, one of the uh, candidates, I don't know, was for senator governor of Virginia that made that comment about Makaka, right? That destroyed his candidacy. In one word, it was over. So I think what Hertzberg was saying was 
There's a big difference and an important difference between those two things. What we can say publicly, the tolerance for that. So I had a, I had a, a friend who came back from Prague. And he said, you wouldn't believe how much anti-Semitism there is in Prague. And I asked him, why is that, Co? He said, well, you know, when I went to synagogue in Prague, and some of you may have experienced this going to synagogues in France or England or, or other parts of Europe. When I went to synagogue in Prague, there were Czech police that were checking our bags to make sure that, you know, we weren't carrying any contraband or whatever. And I said to him, I don't think that's anti-Semitism at all. He said, what do you mean? I said, if there was real anti-Semitism, there would be no Czech police. Right? That's the whole point. The fact that the city of Prague is using its resources to protect the Jews is a sign of there being no anti-Semitism, but the threat of anti-Semites. Right? So that's, that's the, that's, I think that's the, you know, an important point that Hertzberg makes that's worth thinking about. So what I want to do is I want to talk about um, the way in which anti-Semitism is used by us as American Jews in the conversation about who we are in our society and specifically about the relationship to Israel. So that in general, I think what we're experiencing now is something very almost um, macabre in a way, a strange, bizarre. On the one hand, you have, usually in America anyway, usually in America, when we talk about anti-Semitism, we're talking about anti-Semitism that, that, that some people like to call, you know, good old time anti-Semitism, right? The anti-Semitism from the right, neo-Nazi party, the Ku Klux Klan, right? The way in which Americans were, uh, you know, American Jews were excluded from kind of the WASP country clubs. There's the kind of genteel anti-Semitism. And then they're from the right, right? And then there's the kind of more virulent anti-Semitism on the right, and people like the Klan and so on. And that was usually the kind of anti-Semitism that existed. What's happening today in America is the existence or resurgence to some degree of that kind of anti-Semitism, but not in, the over, not in the way that it was 50, 60, 70 years ago, in a much more subtle way, and the emergence of anti-Semitism on the left in the form of the anti-Israel movement. Right, in forms of into a kind of progressive anti-Semitism. Now, there was anti-Semitism on the left back in the 60s, too, with the black nationalist movement and the Black Panthers and so on and so forth. But generally speaking, when Jews think about anti-Semitism or thought about anti-Semitism until the 2000s, they were thinking mostly about anti-Semitism on the right. Today, when Jews think about it, when you go out in the street and talk to your Jewish friends or even non-Jewish friends about anti-Semitism, it is likely that they will be talking about anti-Semitism on the left, right? And by anti-Semitism on the left, they're talking about anti-Israelism. The anti-Zionist movement, the anti-Israel movement, the boycott, divest, sanctions, divestment movement, and so on. And that was what exercised so many people about this panel at the New School, because these were people on the progressive left who were talking about anti-Semitism, talking about the problem of anti-Semitism, including one participant, Linda Sarsour, who was accused of being an anti-Semite by some. Now, she claims that she's not, and she talked about what she means by being anti-Israel and so on and so forth. Now, why is this the case? Why have we, as, a, as an American Jewish community, become so sensitized 
to anti-Semitism on the left, as, in terms of how we define it and how we use it, calling people an anti-Semite or calling an organization anti-Semitic. I think part of what's happened, and this is actually fair, fairly new, I think that many of us think that it's not, but I think if you look through history, it's fairly new, that there has been in the last 25 or 30 years, certainly 40 years, let's, let's, let's be generous and go back 40 years, there has been a kind of unspoken fusion in the American Jewish psyche, collective psyche, speaking in general terms, between American Jewish identity and support of Israel. That Jews in America supported Israel for a long time. Although, if you go back before the Second World War, most American Jews were not Zionists. The Reform Movement was not a Zionist movement. The conservative movement was a Zionist movement, but Zionism was not the centerpiece of its, of its own you know, ideology. There's an anecdote, for example, and I can't verify whether this is true or not, but I'll say it anyway just because it's kind of like apocryphal, but I think it has a heuristic purpose, that in the early 1960s, Louis Finkelstein, who was the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary and one of the leading Jewish figures in America, right? He, in, in, 1940, in the 1940s, he was on the front cover of Time magazine. He was one of the leading Jewish figures in America in mid-century forbade the singing of Hatikva at rabbinical ordination at the Jewish Theological Seminary, right? And his reason was, this is a seminary in America training American rabbis. Hatikva is the national anthem of another country. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't support Israel, but he didn't think it was appropriate to sing the national anthem of another country in the ordination of American rabbis. Now, something like that would be totally unheard of today. Could you imagine a rabbi standing up in a synagogue? I don't care if it's a reform synagogue, reconstruction synagogue, orthodox synagogue in America, and basically saying, we're not going to sing Hatikva. Or basically saying, we don't wanna, we're not going to have the Israeli flag in our synagogue. We're going to have the American flag in our synagogue. Right? Now, most synagogues have the American flag and the Israeli flag. Right? But could you imagine somebody saying that? What would, what would, what would be the pushback of somebody saying that? So what's happened over the course of the last 40 years is that Israel, I should say support of Israel, Zionism is a more complicated question. Who is a Zionist? What is a Zionist? What is Zionism? I think most people who are strongly supportive of Israel, sometimes robustly supportive of Israel, know very little about Zionism, almost nothing about Zionism. That support of Israel has become a kind of civil religion of American Jews that their identity has become so deeply embedded in their support of Israel that they don't believe in God, they don't keep kosher, they don't fast on Yom Kippur, but they support Israel, they give money to Israel, maybe they go to the APEC conference. That is a sufficient condition for that. Um, rabbi Kleinbaum, who was the rabbi, a rabbi in New York City at a 2010 or 11 J Street conference, basically made the following comment as a rabbi. She said, you know, if you go into any synagogue in America, any non-Orthodox synagogue in America, progressive synagogue in America, and you say to the person, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't fast in Yom Kippur. I don't do, I'm not into the mitzvot thing. That's not my thing. Um, but I support Israel. You would be 
allowed to be a member of that synagogue. If you go in and you say, you know, I believe in God, I put on tefillin every day, I fast on Yom Kippur, I even fast on Sheva Asabatamuz, I even I fast on Tisha B'Av, but I actually don't support Israel. The chances are you will be shown the door. And, and what she, the example she was saying is that she wasn't making a value judgment. She was just saying that's where we are as an American Jewish community in terms of what it means to be a Jew in America in 2017. Now, I, bring, I say this all just as a prelude to say that when you, if, if, that, if you accept that as largely true, and I, I, welcome, you know, I welcome kind of comment and critique about that observation, but if you accept that as largely true, then if somebody is going to be critical of Israel, critical of the occupation, or even further than that, that basically strikes at the very, for most American Jews, that strikes at the very core of their Jewishness. And I think that's why, it's the, 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 that's why anti-Semitism so easily flows from the lips of people against those people who are critical of the state of Israel. Now, what's the difference between critical of, what's the line between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? That is the unanswerable question, right? That's the subtle question that nobody's able to tell. If, are you just critical of the occupation? How critical of the occupation? Are you in favor of two states? Are you in favor of one state? Right? You, can, you can then have a large conversation about Israel. But I think part of the th reason that, that anti-Semitism, it becomes the accusation against the left today, whether it's the Jewish left or the progressive left, is because Israel plays such a pronounced role in our psych collective psyche. Now, why that's happened, how that's happened, should that have happened, those are all important questions, but I think it has happened. And I think that's part of the equation and part of the problem that we're dealing with in trying to understand for us the ambigu ambiguous notion of defining anti-Semitism. So defining anti-Semitism is no longer about animus or hatred of the Jew qua Jew, which is how it's normally defined in a very kind of broad sense, but also includes being anti-Israel the line gets erased. And I think it's important for us to, to, to talk about that, to confront it. I'm not, I'm not coming out in favor of one position or the other at this point. I'm just saying I think this is a reality that we don't really think about, that we don't think about enough. And I would say that I think there's a kind of, what would the word, right, right word be? A, a kind of um, cultural translation that's going on here. I think that the anxiety of the American Jewish community, which brings about these kinds of accusations of anti-Semitism, is really not about Israel at all. Because I think in general, and I travel around the country, and I've written about this, and, and, and I've talked to many people, and I've talked to you know, the congregants in my synagogue, college students, the notion, the role that Israel plays in the American Jewish imagination is really not about the country on the other side of the ocean. It's about American Jewry. Many people who are staunch supporters of Israel don't know the language. Some have never even been there. They don't 
know much about the culture. They don't know much about the kind of complex realities that Israelis face every day. Because it doesn't really matter. Because what matters is that Israel serves as a, an anchor for Jewish identity in America. And this is largely because religion no longer serves that function. Most American Jews, for most American Jews, and whatever their religious practices, if you kind of take the Orthodox out of the equation, but for most American Jews, non-Orthodox American Jews, whatever their religious practices, from more liberal to more traditional, that practice is not the centerpiece of their Jewish identity, by and large. Right. Religion has ceased being the centerpiece of Jewish identity, as Will Herberg claimed back in the 1950s. Israel has replaced that. So that's part of the anxiety. The anxiety is not what's going on over there. I don't even know what's going on over there. I don't even, I don't, that, it, that's way over there, right? And there are some Israelis who will say, why are American Jews so obsessed about Israel? Really, I mean, Israeli Jews will say that. Like, I don't get it. Like, what is this, you know, we're a country. You know, we have a complex story and we're dealing with all kinds of, what, what is this obsession with Israel? And I think that it, it, it part because it, it replaces that which is missing, a way for us to basically kind of hang on to a sense of Jewishness, a rooted sense of Jewishness, an authenticity in a society where we are increasingly not marginalized, but accepted in the world that we live in. So it's kind of interesting that if you think about, go back to the, go back to the Gore-Bush election cycle. Right? Well, one of the things that was surprising about the Gore-Bush election cycle is that Joe Lieberman's Jewishness never really became an issue. It just never was, became an issue. I don't know, maybe in people's living rooms, you know, out in Iowa or Idaho or Montana, people talked about it, but it was never really an issue. And Jared and Ivanka never became really, their Jewishness never really became. Yes, in certain places, there was dog whistling about it. But in general, Americans today can easily, easily, easily tolerate a Jewish president. Much more easily than a black president. As we see in, you know, everything, all, all, what was drawn up, I think a lot of what we're seeing now in terms of racism in, Amer in America is really what was dragged up from the Obama administration. I mean, I live in Indiana. I mean, this is Phoenix, Arizona. It's a different place. I live in Indiana. I can tell you some of the people that I know in Indiana, not people in the university, obviously, but people outside in the farmlands, oh, yes, Obama's administration, that dragged up a lot of things that had been latent for decades. And I think we're seeing the, the, back, the, 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 the fruits of that. What really bothers American Jews? Is it really the critique of Israel? I don't really think so. I think what really bothers American Jews, if you want to ask me personally, is intermarriage. That's really, that's really the issue. What really bothers American Jews is intermarriage. What do we do about intermarriage? 2013 Pew poll came out, shocking, right? If you take the Orthodox Jews out of the picture, 70% of Jews in America intermarry. If you put the Orthodox in, it's 58%. Now, there's no real way, and I think that if you've seen the, the Jewish movements, the reform movement, the conservative movement have come out, the leaders of those movements have come out, 
and kind of acknowledge there's no real way that, to, to bring those numbers down very much. Maybe you could bring them down a point or two here and there. That's what living in a democracy means and being a tolerated minority in a democracy means. So if somebody would say to you, would you support congressional legislation prohibiting non-Jews from marrying Jews? We ha we've had that. We had that in Germany, right? Would you support that? Everyone would say, I, I, I venture to say everyone here would say no, right? Fair enough. So you want to live in a society where Jews can marry Jews, but they don't. But there's a paradox there. Right? You want to live in a society where other peoples can marry the other groups. I mean, Koreans can marry Latinos, and blacks can marry whites, and Irish Catholics can marry Native Americans. All for that. Everyone's for that. Right? I'm sure most of you were probably, and maybe not, I don't know, but I would assume that most Jews were against the policy of Bob Jones University against interracial dating. You remember back in the first Bush era, right? But not Jews. So what is that kind of Jewish exceptionalism that's built into our imagination? We want to live in a society where Jews could marry non-Jews, but they don't. We want to live in a society where other ethnic minorities can marry other minorities, and we hope that they do. We think it's a better society if anyone can marry anyone. I don't think that anyone here thinks that oh, Irish Catholics should only marry Irish Catholics. Um, uh, again, I think this is, this is, these, are the, these are the things that are really bothering American Jews. And in a sense, what we're doing is we're kind of deflecting some of that anxiety toward the problem of anti-Semitism. In a way, because those anxieties that we have are very, very difficult to control. Because for us to actually live in a society where Jews do not marry non-Jews, it would have to be a different society than the one we live in. And not necessarily a preferred society to the one we live in. Anti-Semitism, on the other hand, is in a certain way easily easy to control. Because what does anti-Semitism, how does anti-Semitism function for us as American Jews? And again, I'm speaking very generally. How does anti-Semitism function for us? It's basically a exercise in policing. Because when you say that's anti-Semitic, when you say that's racist, you shut down a conversation. It's no longer about we disagree with each other. You have a view and I have a view. It's no, I have a view and your view has to be silenced. And I think it's important for us to think about why, in fact, not why, but whether, in fact, Using anti-Semitism as a policing tool, and this is, by the way, not to deny that there is real, authentic anti-Semitism in our country on the right and on the left. But it's interesting for me to see how many Jews I know, personally, as friends, that are willing to get up and protest someone like Linda Sassur because they accuse her of being an anti-Semite, and yet Breitbart News gets a pass. Nobody really, that's not anti-Semitism. When Trump tweeted out that photograph of Hillary with the Jewish star and money, you remember during the election, right? 
That's not really anti that's a pass, right? In other words, it's interesting, wherever you stand on the, and, and just the opposite too, by the way. No, you're right. It, I, I shouldn't. I should, I'll correct myself. You're right. Not a complete pass, but it. it it's the opposite. It's actually not even a pass. I mean, I'm just telling you from the people, myself and the people yeah. I know, those are the things that started stirring up feelings of concern. No, so I, so that then 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 that's good. However, I wonder how many of the the Jewish community who were Trump supporters. Right? And, and by the way, of the Jewish community that's Trump supporters, the larger, the larger constituent, largest constituent of Jewish Trump supporters are Orthodox Jews. Right? So how many of those Jews who otherwise are incredibly sensitized to anti-Semitism in all kinds of ways, somehow that was not enough for, to take that support away? Now, among some it was, I agree, but it didn't seem to add, and, and I would say those people who are still supportive of, of Trump. Now, again, I don't want to get into the politics of Trump and non-Trump. That's not, that's, not that's not the question, right? That's not my issue here. The issue is the way in which wherever you stand on the political spectrum, you, you give a pass to the anti-Semitism on your side and are sensitized to the anti-Semitism on the other side, whether you're on the right or on the left. What's that? Who isn't doing that? No. Right. 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 That's a good question. I think I think there are people that are speaking that way. But 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 before before I'd, you know I'd like to hear what other people think about that too because I think it's a good question. I just want to step back and say that. What's troubling to me, and again, I'm a liberal, right? I can say that outright. I don't think anybody in here initially thought otherwise after listening to me for half an hour. But, <laughs> but, but, I, but I can say that, that what's troubling to me is that people who I find to be, let's say, on the, political, on the right side of the political spectrum, who I wouldn't necessarily call them anti-Semites. That's a little bit harsh. But are, I don't know, willing to traffic in certain stereotypes that might be anti-Semitic, if they're pro-Israel, it's OK. Right. That's what the pass is, right? Right? I don't think so. For a lot of people, I think. Uh, for, not, for, not for everybody, again. Go ahead, go ahead, please, yeah. Yes, it's on both sides. It's on both sides. Because we all see these things, but whoever you voted for, okay, there's still, it doesn't take away. A lot of people voted for a, very, a lot right. of different reasons. The racism or anti Semitism concerns wasn't on the top of everyone's list. Right. But the Jewish community, whether they're on the right or the left, they're seeing these things, and it's really concerning. And there's a rise when you look at the percentage of anti Semitism in this country and in Europe and in Australia. Right. Right, right. This is really a concern, and it really is outside of our politics. Right. I agree with you. I, I, I just, I just, I agree with you. I mean, I think worldwide is a very different. What's going on in Europe and South America and Israel is really a kind of a, a very different 
con kind of context. But I'll say, just, to, just as for balance sake, I think there are people on the left in the progressive world who are very committed to uh, in being involved in left-wing political movements, Bernie Sanders to the, and to the left, who too easily give a pass to the anti-Semitism that exists on the left, too. It, I'm saying it ha it's happening on both sides. right? Now, I don't think that was an issue, really, between Trump and Clinton. right? I think that, in a certain way, I don't think Clinton represented the progressive left. But Sanders did. So what, what, I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to say is, and I think you're right to kind of take it out of politics, because it's, it's much beyond the political. I think what I want to suggest is that the anxiety itself is really not about that. I mean, I think that, yes, anti-Semitism exists in America. Is it a problem? It depends how we under define the term problem. Does it, does it, are, we, are, we are we now in some kind of existential threat in America as Jews? I think the answer to that is no. I think what threatens to destroy our country is race and not anti-Semitism. What destroyed Weimar Germany was anti-Semitism. That's what brought Hitler to power. What threatens to rip apart our country today is not anti-Semitism, although it exists. It's race. And I think one of the things that was the, one of the hardest things for American Jews who immigrated to this country from other parts of the world, whether it, whether it, was, whether it was Europe, whether it was North Africa, I think one of the, different, one of the challenging things for the American Jewish community historically to be able to grapple with is that we were living in a society where we were not the most othered other. We were not the most hated group. Right? Race always trumps anti-Semitism in America. Always has and probably always will. It's not to say that the one that the other doesn't exist. But that, that was something that for most Americans, for most Jews who were immigrated from other parts of the world, that was something new, right? If you lived in Germany, if you lived in Poland, if you lived in Russia, if you lived in Morocco or, or Algeria, right? The Jews were the most othered other. You were the ones who were really the victims. And in America, that was not the case. And that's, I think that had something to do with Jewish involvement in civil rights. I think that had something to do with people like Joachim Prince and Abraham Joshua Heschel and Jewish leaders who got up and said, we could now represent the most othered other, and it's not us, but we want to actually march with them. We want to stand with them. We want to fight with them. But there's also an anxiety about that. What do we, we're not, I mean, look, anti-Semitism is something that has threatened the Jews and kept the Jews together at the same time. As someone once said, the only thing more dangerous than anti-Semitism is no anti-Semitism. I think it was also Arthur Hertzberg might have said that. I'm not, sure, I'm not exactly, I don't remember exactly. So that in some way, although we don't want to do it, unconsciously, when we feel threatened because of a lack of anti-Semitism, and that is assimilation, toleration, integration, intermarriage being the most tangible expression of that, we subconsciously, it's not that we're creating anti-Semitism, because I don't think we are, because I think it exists, but we're, we're, we're churning it up, we're, 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 we're making it maybe more of a problem than it is. And today, nowadays, 
the most, ex I think, explicit expression of resistance to the Jews is in the progressive movement against Israel, critique of Israel. Is that anti-Semitic? Some of it probably is. Not as much as people, I don't think as much as people think, but some of it maybe is. And I think the big wake-up call for us was Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Because Charlottesville was like, whoa, this was not supposed to happen. Right? And, and one of the things, I think it was Sassur said, one of the most troubling things about Charlottesville was not that people were marching with torches saying Jews will not replace us. One of the most troubling things about Charlottesville is that they didn't even feel the need to cover their faces. They didn't even feel the need to cover their faces. But again, did that really change our attitude toward that anti-Semitism over there on the right? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. When the president said, well, there are good people over there, did that really get a lot of Jews who were supportive of the president say, oh, that, that is like too far? Some, yes, but by and large, the support is probably pretty much what it was before. So it's a kind of, it, it, I think we're at a very, very interesting moment in our history. I don't think we're being physically threatened. I don't feel like we're being existentially threatened. I don't think that, that, the, there is any chance that there will be a ro an erosion of political support, financial, military support of Israel from the United States government. I don't care if it's a Democrat or a Republican. I don't think any of those are at risk. What is at risk is our identities as Jews. And what is the thing that's going to keep us and keep the next generation attached to a sense of Jewishness, a solidarity, a notion of collective consciousness that we're part of something. And I think anti-Semitism is a way of us, a way for us to do so. But I think it's, you know, in a way what it creates, to my mind, and I want to end with this, a kind of, of something that I call negative Judaism. It's not a positive Judaism. It's a negative Judaism. We have to remain Jews because people hate us. And even if it's true that people hate us, I think that the Jews living in Poland in the 18th century, they experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, much more than us. They were physically threatened. What kept them Jewish was not that the other people hated them. They had a positive sense of Jewishness and Judaism that was deeply rooted. Now, we can't repeat that. We can't return to that. It's a different society. We're living in a multicultural, post-ethnic society. We can't go back and try to rebuild 18th century Poland. I don't think we should want to. Because those people, many of our ancestors, they weren't living great lives. But it still is worth, us, worth for us to think about how anti-Semitism gets used in order to fulfill something that we should fulfill, not to create a kind of negative identity, but a positive one. So thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
So please. Just before we get questions and comments, yeah. as you know, uh, we don't do entertainment at VBM. We do provocative. We want, we want everyone to feel uncomfortable, not comfortable. Okay. If you want to feel comfortable, go to the symphony. So, so, so we hope that this is, this is complicated stuff, um, and we hope everyone feels provoked, and so uh, a chance to kind of dive into that in conversation and questions. Good. Please. Yeah. Please. Okay, I'll dive in. Um, I, would, I, I think I can speak for most of the people in this room when I say that we grew up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s where Israel is paramount. And we grew up as Jews. And as Jews, we grew up with certain ideas and values and missions in life and supported Israel at the same time. And we were basically all on the left, I think, for the most part. And now we get to come to a point where the perception is that Israel is doing things counter to the values that we fought in the streets for. And that creates an anxiety and then brings up the very clash that you see between anti-Israel and anti-Semitism. How do we deal with that? And how do we teach our children and grandchildren to deal with that dichotomy? That's a very good question. So just to repeat the question for the sake of people listening in the podcast, because I'm the one with the mic. Um, I think it's a, it's a very important question. Uh, it, basically, the, the, the question, as I understand it, is that for, for most of us, um, I may be a little younger than some of you, but for most of us um, who grew up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, or I say 50s and the 60s, up to the Six-Day War, Israel was, a, was not a very complicated story, right? I mean, it was a story of success. Right? It was somehow, it was, it was the salve for the trauma of the Holocaust in some way, as not to say that there can be a real, you know, a real healing for the Holocaust, but it was something, it was, it was a source of pride. It was a source of pride for American Jews. It was a source of pride for Jews around the world. It was building a desert, in, it was building a, you know, a, yeah, a, what's the term? A, not a garden in the desert, but a... An oasis in the desert, and you know, we we saw, you know, we're, we all we all get teary-eyed when we hear the overture to like 1961 Otto Preminger's movie Exodus, right? And we all feel moved. Even if we watch it today, we feel moved by it, right? Um, and then after 67, which was supposed to be the triumphal movement, right? Another Holocaust averted. Right? It was a mixed blessing because it gave us the occupation. Whether you want to call it that, you don't want to call it that, I don't want to kind of get into the politics of that term. But I'll just say that after 1967, for many Jews who were on the left, who fought for social justice, who fought for civil rights, Israel became a much more complicated place. It just became a more complicated, whatever your op opinions about it are, it became a more complicated place. And yet the support continued, by and large. But it was complicated. It wasn't so easy. Now move that to a millennial generation, people who are college students, people who are in their 20s, my kids, right? My kids now are in their early 30s, but they're still millennials. They have no historical memory of anything before 1967. Israel as a country was an occupying power their entire lives, right? So for them, it's not as complicated as it is for us in a way because it's much easier for them to resist the policies of the country because, then, because for them, that's all the country is. 
So in my, you know, in my intro to Judaism class, I used to show the film Exodus. And I stopped doing it because the kids were laughing at it. It was a propaganda film for them. Literally, it was a propaganda film for them. They had no, there was no tears, there were no tears, right? It was like, you know, I had students come up to me. I, I, the true story, I've had students come to me in the middle of the movie and say, Professor, you can mark me absent. I need to leave. I can't take it anymore. Right? So the question is really a good one. Many of people from our generation, from the greatest generation, the baby boom generation, can feel the complexity of the, of the situation, of the reality. And it's, and it's now continuing on and on and on. But yet still are tied. We still have historical memory. We can still remember, right? We still had parents, maybe some of us, but certainly parents who survived the Holocaust, right? There's, there's, that, there's that sense of rootedness that allows us to remain supportive. And yet we say to our millennial children, how could you not be supportive of Israel? How could you not be supportive of Israel? And they would say, why should I support Israel? It's an occupying power. I mean, and, and what's your answer? But, 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 and they said, that's not, that's not part of my reality. You can't, you can't, I mean, don't, you can't, you can't give trauma to another generation in the same way. So I think there's a generational, there's a gen, really a generational clash that's going on that is real. And I think the extent to which we don't understand because of where we come from, we don't understand their perspective. Because ultimately, you know, we're not going to be walking the earth forever, right? Eventually, they'll take over, and the next generation after them will take over. And if all we can give them is trauma, I don't think that that's going to be sufficient to be able to perpetuate uh, you know, people in the future. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic question. I think it, it gets to the real kind of the real, the real kind of breaking point in this kind of generation gap between those who remember and those who don't remember. I'm going to, I'll repeat the question to it. Charlottesville, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and people marching uh, with, with banners and, and clubs and, and, and not covering their faces is going to be a rallying cry for other... To, we don't want this to happen. We, we, so we have to... It seems to me, uh, in terms of the way I see the world, um, it, it's inspired me to 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 want to identify more as a Jew in, in this world just because I think that 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 was the beginning of Nazism started in small ways and this is a small thing that that can inspire a lot of people that have a good heart to that they're, they're Jews and, and, and that they, they want to not only protect the Jew, but they want to protect the, our civilization as, as we wanted it to be for our children and grandchildren. Right. So, I mean, the question, the question was really, well, not necessarily a question, but the, the observation, the point was that Charlottesville could really um, be a rallying cry for an upswing in Jewish affiliation or Jewish identity, right? 
I, I think I think that's probably true. I think it's a bit, a bit sad for me. To, it's sad for me to agree with you because it's sad for me to think that it takes that. It'll take something like that. that because what is that saying? Well, actually, we kind of, we're not going to say it outside the door, but we kind of need a little bit of anti-Semitism, right? Because if, if it's going to take that, that we're going to need that or else we're just going to kind of disappear. And that's the kind of thing that, that uh, you know, that is spoken around in kind of Jewish, you know, Shabbat tables or dinner tables, but you don't, you don't tell us side because we, we're, we're actually afraid if there's really no anti-Semitism. So a Charlottesville every once in a while actually is a good dose of medicine for us. But it's a strange way to think about a notion, a person, a, a, a notion of a person's identity that, that it's only, you know, it, it goes back to Jean-Paul Sartre's anti-Semite Jew, right? It's the anti-Semite that defines the Jew. I mean, we would hope that Sartre was, that would actually be wrong, but I think these kinds of things are proving that in some way he's actually right. Well, how, how important to write a speech is to everybody. Right. And, and that we can have elections and we can, we can stand up and, and support whatever our beliefs are in this country. Uh, we don't want to make it uh, right. one, one way to go. I right. think that, that it's very important for the group that you're talking about. I guess it would be almost my grandchildren. Certainly my children understood what Israel was important about. But to learn more about history, American history, European history, all the history of all the nations that now say they're democratic in, in a you know, small sense. Um, there isn't a country on earth that hasn't taken land from other people. This country started with Europeans coming here, seeing there were human beings here, sticking something in the, in the ground and saying, this is for England, this is for Spain, this is blah, 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 blah. So for the children that you're teaching right now who want to separate Israel from every other country that's become a country because they have gained ground by being more strong, you know, having better weapons or whatever, that, by, that, conquering by conquering other people, that why is it only Israel that has to be 100% good? Do you approve of that? That, that, that there's something that. wrong with that thinking. And I think that if you're educating these people, you might be able to tell them that in the history of countries growing, this is what happens. It's too bad, but that is what happens. And if they'd rather see no Israel, let them think about what that right. would mean. Well, I think I understand. Uh, okay, so the question or the, the, the comment is that, and this is something that's, that's, that's heard very often in these kinds of conversations, is that what, what, what happened as a result of 1967, what happened as a result of the occupation, is that um, Israel is engaged, in, 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 is, is engaged in a process uh, that is not unprecedented that existed before in history many, many times. In fact, you can say that nation states in general, that's how nation states happen, that's how wars happen, and one king conquered another king, one, right. So I, I think, um, do, you wanna, do you wanna respond to that, or, and then I'll respond, I would. Conquering is done by an aggressor. What Israel did was defend itself because they were, they, 
they were not the ones that, that started this invasion. They were, they were defending themselves and protecting themselves. They were not the conquerors, and anybody that says they were is wrong. Yep. They're, they're redefining history. Okay, Do you want to res Well, I, I want to respond to the first. Please respond, yeah. So let me let me let me let me let me, let me, let me I think here here's a, here's a, here's a response and again I, these are questions that have come up many times in conversations with people are sitting around a table all across the country and in seminar rooms and in lecture halls right it's it's a difficult case to make and this is by the way something that 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 uh, you know that is part of the kind of Israeli narrative as well. And there's a difficult case to make. It is true, we committed genocide against the Native Americans. There's no doubt about that. Right? We, as a, as a country, none of us here, right? And not all Americans were in favor of that. There, were, there was plenty of resistance in the 1850s and the 1860s during the Indian Wars about people who were opposed to the policies of the country about what was going on, who were opposed to Andrew Jackson, basically uh, signing a bill to take away Native American land. Right, so it wasn't that everybody was in favor of it. There were plenty of people who were opposed. And I would hope that had all of us been living in the 1860s, we would have been opposed to that. We wouldn't have actually, we wouldn't have actually signed on to what Andrew Jackson was doing. So I think it's a difficult case to make from my perspective. It's a difficult case to make that what's going on over there now is justified, has to be justified only because we committed genocide 150 years ago. We did commit genocide 150 years ago, right? There's no doubt about that. But to say that I'm justifying this because of that is not really a strong justification, in my view. Now, it, it is true. What you're saying is historically true, no, what right? what I'm saying is that the Europeans came here before they... Yeah. And so I'm not talking about the 1800s when there was the United States of America. I'm saying that from the beginning of the history that became yes, the United States no of doubt. America, Europeans were coming here for their king and their country sticking a stick in the ground and saying, now this is ours, right. while there was obviously people right. living here. Right. So for, so. No, I didn't endorse that. No. Um, no, so, so let, let me. Let, let me let me respond to that because it's a good point. So my response to that is again, I, the, the conversation is going in a particular direction, but it's fine. I think that that I would say this: we not only the, not only through the Indian Wars, but through the through colonialism, right? Now, most of the West, most of the Middle East and America, whatever, most of Africa, it was the product of colonialism. We have decided as a global community largely, right? That colonialism was wrong. It was a mistake. It happened, it was an error. We don't want to repeat colonialism again, right? But again, that's, that's not a strong, it's not a strong case to say that, yes, America was colonized and we destroyed a people so that in 2017, it's okay to do the same thing. Otherwise, you're saying there's no real progression of human civilization. We're just, why don't we just basically take, so, take spears and start killing each other? Right? We don't do that, right? We have rules of war. 
We have international rules of war. We have a Geneva Convention. Those things are important, right? We like that. We think that's part of human progress. So I think that that I don't I don't see that as a strong kind of justification. Now there are, are there are other arguments to be made. And to your point, I'll say that I think that most of the people that are on the left protesting against the occupation are not protesting against the war. They're not protesting against what happened in June 1967. What happened in June 1967 was clearly a defensive war, right? Even to the people who are opposed to the occupation now, most of them would say, yes, Israel was threatened. The other armies attacked. Nobody is questioning Israel's right to defend itself. That's not what the issue is. The issue is 50 years later that the occupation existed for 50 years, that it existed for 10 years, that it existed for 15 years. And by the way, this is, not, this is not coming from the radical left. This is coming from Israel itself. If you read about the debates that were going on in the government in 1969, 1970, 1971, David Ben-Gurion, retired in Stay Boker, his kibbutz, wrote a letter to the prime minister in 1968 said, you have to give that back to Jordan. You can't, this will destroy, it's an amazing letter. This, he said, this will destroy our country, right? And there were other people in the government that were saying the same thing. It didn't happen. For all kinds of reasons, you could read the histories of what was going on in terms of, you know, you know ministerial debates about what, you can, you can read all those. It didn't happen for all kinds of reasons. Part of it was miscalculation, part of it was laziness, part of it is that, uh, uh, that they thought that the, that the Palestinians in the West Bank were just going to get up and leave and go back to Jordan. There were all kinds of things that they thought would happen. And then the issue was really not about capturing territory in war. That is legal, according to the Geneva Convention. What is not legal is settling civilians there. That is the issue on the left. It wasn't about doing what had to be done. It's by taking civilians and putting them in disputed territories. That is really the issue. So now, Israel is put in a situation, even if, the let's say, let's say a, a liberal minister got up in Israel and said, you know something? Okay, I, I want to end this occupation. I want to establish a Palestinian state. We can do it. That can no longer happen, because there are 500,000 people living there 250,000 that are going to have to be moved. But it's not true. Right? That's not a true point. Because in Gaza, when, they, when we left, we removed all the people that were living there left, from my understanding. That's number one. Number two. 5,000. Okay. Right. We did it. Okay. And I heard something that was really interesting with last week. Somebody said, why is it we're in, in, in a democracy? We have lots of Arabs in Israel. Why is it that Jews can't be in their land? I'm not, that's never going to point out. Right. But I have a couple of things. Number one, my concern, because after the Six Day War, people were really concerned about this, by the way. It wasn't something that just happened now. Of course, of course. Is how it's spun. How the whole thing spun. Because everything is Israel's fault versus the fact that it appears to me that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that Building their own area, but instead the 
Well, that's, that's my okay. Yeah. A lot of your points are true. I, I agree with them and they're true. Um, I think that there's a couple points in there that are important. Number one, is it part of the Jewish community having a sense of um, safety and feeling that they can just be Jews here is because of Israel. So when Israel, when there's issues threatening Israel or people attacking Israel, it goes to our own sense of security as Jews here because it's very tight. So that's number one. Number two, there right. is anti-Semitism. I was fortunate, right? I grew up in the generations you're talking about. I came from California, never had, I lived in primarily like predominant Jewish areas, but so I grew up without any prejudice. Came here, also haven't felt that, but I have been lately. Okay, and there's people who've been telling me, I'm a therapist, so people are telling me, I had one person who's 30 years old, who's like, oh, I'm talking with my friends, and this is telling me, and they're, oh, they're joking about putting me in the ovens and stuff like that. And I was appalled. Okay? And I've been hearing that that's going on a lot. Yep. Okay? There's people who are making jokes about Jewish jokes now. I had them done in my office. They're right. not aware of it, and they're doing it. And so with Trump and with what he did, that it's giving people permission to express things that are already underneath there, and it is happening, and it is anti-Semitism. And yes, there's much more racism than anti-Semitism, but they're starting to start coming out together and the way everything's spun with with the with what with all the with Israel, the whole spin and I've been watching stuff that's going on in the universities and stuff. And your comments, you know, some of these things, it's not as if when you talk about history, that's a big problem in our younger generation because they don't know the history and they're taking this whole thing of I'm with you in terms of our we're living in a different world now. So social justice and not having people being free from colonial Powers is what is going on in our world now. But the people who are having these conversations, the young people who are having these conversations, they're not seeing the whole picture of what Israel is and what's actually happening. And the conversations are based on this skewed view of the whole picture. And that's really disturbing. Right. Okay, so Rabbi, can I have the permission not to repeat that? <laughs> so for all you listening to the podcast, I'd like to repeat the question. You said a lot of things. You said a, a lot of uh, different things. So I want to try to re relate to a couple of them. I think that there's an interesting irony in, in, one, of, in one of the first things you said, is that for most of the years you were talking about, from the 1950s, 1960s, even 1970s, one of the things that really actually brought American Jews together because American Jews have disagreed with all kinds of things in terms of denominations and practice and belief. One of the things that brought them together was Israel. Rabbis traditionally gave sermons about Israel on Yom Kippur, right? United Jewish Appeal. And it was like, it was the thing that brought them together. 2017, it is the thing that is destroying American Jewry, right? Rabbis cannot speak about Israel in a synagogue anymore, right? It's, the, it's turned the opposite. Right? It's the thing that's tearing us apart. Right? No, wait, 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 let, me, let me just finish. Now, we can talk about why. There are, there are all kinds of reasons as to what. That's the, that's the concern, is that the, the, there's, a, there's a message, a certain uh, storyline that can't talk about it because people have a certain perception about it. If they have a perception that Israel has been wanting to make peace, okay, let's talk about different solutions now that we can have, if we don't have a partner to, to make peace with, what are other options that we can do? But instead, the story is that we can't talk about it because somehow Israel's so bad. No, 
No, I'll tell you what, I don't think that's the reason. I think that we can't talk about it because it's complicated, because some people think Israel is so bad, and some think people think that Israel is not bad at all. It's not only one side. The reason that we can't talk about it is only because there's one side. It's, if there was only one side, then we could talk about it. It's because there are two sides. Because there are two narratives and two stories, and it, there's not like, oh, our young kids, they don't know the truth if they knew the truth. No, the truth is complicated. It's a messy story. I lived in Israel. I served in the army in the First Intifada. I went through Palestinian villages with an, a loaded M16. I know what it is. I saw the hatred of those kids when they looked at me, and I understood it. Why shouldn't they hate me? Why shouldn't they hate me? I am, I am ruling their lives. I am arresting their brothers. So uh, this is no. So I, let me let me just just. No, 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 no. They're, they're not fed from their leaders. They're living their lives and seeing. I could tell. And here I can go into personal experience. This. This was, this, this was the first intifada that there were no rockets. This is before the rockets. Remember, there's an interesting point to make, and again, I don't want to kind of slip into this, because this is, again, th this kind of conversation, which is a good one, and your questions are good ones, but this is the kind of conversation that can unravel any Jewish topic, whether it's... I, I disagree, because you've said a number of times, it is so respectful. Right? I, I, I hear you, yeah. But I think I, I think I think the, I think that you're, you're right, um, and I I, I I wish that that were the case. But it's from my experience, it's not the case because of the way that both narratives right. are, by definition, excluding the other. Exactly. Right. It's a problem with the country right. Too. Right. It's a problem in the country too. But. Well, I'll tell you why. Just to, to speak personally for a moment. The reason why I can't, or people like me can't, is because I'm sitting right there, and, and you're all very generous and very open, and this is much more civil than it could be. Put it that way, right? But when I would uh, address an audience, the moment people sense where I'm coming from, half the people shut down. And bef before, but, but that, but that, I, I understand that is the problem. That you know, that kind of is the reality. But but I will say one of the. Yeah, let me let me let me just say one more thing. I, I just want to I just want to I just want to kind of push back on one thing that you said, right? I think that it's it's a mistake to make the claim, and and you know it's the kind of thing where you start to say things and you you say, oh my God, I sound like my father, right? Or I sound like my mother, right? Where I think it's a mistake to say that these millennial college students, whatever, in general. The problem is, is that they don't know history. Many of these kids know far more than we do, far more than we do.
These are some of these kids that are in like in, in left-wing Jewish groups, like if not now, are day school kids. They know Hebrew, they know Jewish history, they've been to Israel. They, it's not that they don't know. Now, it's true. There is a lack of knowledge, just like there was a lack of knowledge in our generation. And our parents said when we protested the war or we protested this, they would say, you don't know, you guys don't know anything, right? You're starting from scratch, you have no sense of history and blah, blah, blah. We, were, we all remember our parents saying that to us for all kinds of, in all kinds, for all kinds of reasons, right? Um, I know my parents said that to me. So that's a generational thing. But I think, it, I think if we can t move forward a little bit in terms of one generation to the other, to say that ignorance is not the only reason that people hold positions that we don't agree with. It may be one of the reasons, but it's not the first thing to say to a 21-year-old, you think this because you don't know anything. Now, I'm not to say that there isn't gaps in knowledge. So I, I, I just think it's, it's better to kind of bridge that generation gap a little bit to basically say, you know, maybe you have an informed opinion that's different than mine. And that's legitimate. Then you can start to have the conversation. Because once you say you don't, you, you know, I, I, I think that that the, the reason, the, it, 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 there may be all kinds of reasons why these things are falling apart, but I think, again, to go back to the, to the anti-Semitism topic of the, of the afternoon, is that very often the way in which these conversations break down easily is when somebody just takes the anti-Semitism card, right? Oh, you support that group, they're anti-Semitic. Oh, you support that group, you're anti-Semitic, right? And so in a way where, 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 where um, in a sense, numbing our own sensibilities to really actually locate where there's actually real anti-Semitism. And I think the Charlottesville thing, that's why Charlottesville thing was such a big wake-up for us. That's why those kinds of, you know, memes about, you know, the Hillary Clinton thing or all kinds of other, you know, all kinds of other stuff that, that gets floated around. Or, frankly, Islamophobia, right, which is something that we really haven't talked about, right? Jews don't want to talk about Islamophobia because we don't want to have a competition to anti-Semitism. We want to be the ones, right? Okay, racism, okay, we'll share it. We understand racism, right? We grew up in an era but Islamophobia, you don't know how much pushback there is in the American Jewish community against the very notion of Islamophobia. That walking around in a hijab today, you are more likely to be harassed than walking around with a kippah. Right? In many places in the country, that is true. Not all, all, all over. In many places in the country, I know that on college campuses where I go, people will tell me that it's more dangerous to walk around with a hijab than a kippah. Of course, of course. That there wasn't, you know, that we were the newest, but we were, and because we went through what we went through and fought here, then we helped other, right. the, the African Americans, and now it's also really important for the Muslims. Any kind of, any kind of prejudice is bad. But, I, but it's very, what's very interesting about, this is a very important point. What's very interesting about the Jewish, Jewish relationship with the Muslim, Muslim Americans, and there's a lot of work being done. I, I work for the Shalom Hartman Institute, and we have a Muslim leadership initiative of Muslims who are engaged in meeting with Jews and so on, and they get a lot of flack from the Muslim community, anti-normalization, you can't have anything to do with the community that calls itself Zionist, all of those kinds of things are happening. But on the other side, 
side, there is, there is a growing kind of Islamophobia within the American Jewish community. I can give you one example. And it's a kind of a harrowing example. And this, again, this is a very kind of complicated person, Linda Sarsour, who's a Muslim activist, anti-Israel, Palestinian-American. At a conference in, in um, Boston a couple of weeks ago, she spoke, and she, she had to hire a bodyguard. And she had a number of threats against her family, and she, she, this is the story that she told. I can't verify it as being true, but this is the story that she told. She got a package in the mail a couple of weeks ago by an identifiably Jewish organization. And in the package was a scrapbook of pictures of her children. Right? Now, she got a scrapbook in the mail, pictures of her children, as, a, as an intimidation. Right? Somebody's taking pictures of her children. They're putting, basically, we're watching you, that kind of thing. Right? Now, I'm, I can't verify the story, but I don't have any reason to doubt it. I mean, she got up in public and told the story. Those kinds of things are, the, the American Jewish community is, 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 is a very complicated community, and her anti-Israel positions are being the source of her life being threatened. Now, we could say, go oh, I'm sorry. Right. For certain, certainly their family. Certainly their family. Right. Not their family, them either. Right. No, I think that there is argument, but I'm not going to make it right now. But go ahead. <laughs> but, yeah. No, you know, no, yeah, you're putting, you're, you're, this is what people are yeah. right. And that's where, that's where, and again, it's, whoever's going over the top is saying whatever they're saying is terrible. And I, who wouldn't condemn it? But when people defend Sarsour, they defend her on things that are not what people are reacting to. And there's a disconnect. And, and you know, that's where the conversation is. Right. So, what people are you referring to? When I hear it in general, I mean, in general. Look, look, let, let's take let's take it down a couple of notches from someone like yeah. because she's such a problematic person and divisive in many ways. Take it to you know, I'm I'm now at the Center of Jewish History in New York City doing research. The Center of Jewish History just hired a new executive director and president, CEO, director and president, David Myers, who's a professor of Jewish history from UCLA. There was a, a movement that included two street protested, protests and daily threatening emails to his personal email against him. Now, he's a member of J Street on the board of the, uh, national, of the uh, national Israel Fund, um, a left-wing 
Jew who has been openly critical of the occupation, but he's one of the most prominent Jewish historians, right? He's, you know, a, a, a uh, I mean, I don't think anyone could really question his Jewish credentials and his work in the Jewish community, yet he gets threatening emails daily, and it was a concerted effort, and tens of thousands of dollars to try to, um, to try to dissuade board members of the Center for Jewish History to support him and to get him fired from a job because, why? He was a member of J Street. He was a member of the New Israel Fund. I mean, we're not talking radical leftists here, right? So we could take it far down the line from, from someone like Linda Sassour and take it from, you know, from Linda Sassour to David Myers. There's a lot of distance. And yet, the way in which segments of the American Jewry are reacting and pouring thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. A lot of that money comes from Sheldon Adelson and people like that. Um, the, person that was, the person that was running this campaign against, uh, against David Myers is also connected to the Netanyahu government, right? So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things going on as a way of trying to undermine the left, the liberal left in Israel uh, the liberal left in America that includes intimidation, that includes the attempt to destroy someone's career and someone's reputation. So, you know, Sassur may be, a, may be a, an extreme example, and I just brought it because of kind of the, that, that level of intimidation. But it's happening, you know, there's an organization run out of Duke University called Campus Watch. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Campus Watch, that basically trolls the internet to point out professors who may be saying things that are anti-Israel or anti-Semitic and then putting their names on that website, right? I am on the Campus WAP website. Why? Interesting as to why. I taught a course at Indiana University, which was a graduate course. The graduate course was called Jewish Critics of Zionism, right? That was enough to get me on Campus Watch. It was an academic course. And most of the people that were on the syllabus were Jews who actually considered themselves Zionists, right? So what I'm saying, this is, this is, a, this is a, I think, has, has deeper roots than we really think. And, then, and so isolating it to the kind of sessures of the world, I think, are more, uh, it's more, it runs deeper than that. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I, think, I think you've just identified uh, better than any sense of division and partisanship in this country. And it crosses all kinds of right, sure. Jewish and non-Jewish. Yeah. But I am, because you have, you know, we're all of a certain age, and you hit the, the hot button item, and everybody wants Of course. Of course. <laughs> okay, so let's... So can we go back, though? Okay. I'm interested, because you spend your time with young people, this is what I'm concerned about. My children grew up, as far as I know, unless they never told me, never experienced any type of anti-Semitic uh, remark or event in their life. They do not get up every day worrying about anti-Semitism or worrying about Israel. They worry about getting a job, having a living, of course. having a family. They may be a slightly more knowledgeable because of their father about <laughs> Israel and Jews, but that's happenstance. What, what's happening with the people, that, the students that you have, and how, how can the 
not be made to understand, how can they understand the complexity you just talked about before the wall comes down and everybody separates to both sides of the room? Right. Right. Okay. That's a, but Shumi, did you want to? You want? Yeah. I guess. I, I guess touching on a similar point there, which is just, and you touched on this earlier, but I want to understand it better. Why is it that if we debate if there's a God or the role of meets vote or whatever, we don't actually feel fired up, right? But when it comes to the topic of anti-Semitism in Israel, we get so intense. <laughs> we're like burning up inside of ourselves. This. Uh, I can't wait to scream about this and scream about that. Right. So why is it that this in the American Jewish discourse and impulse is the thing? Yes, no, it's a very good it's a very good question. I want to address it, but let me address your question first. I think one of the things that um, that I found that we're living through now in 2017 is the aftermath and the fruits in some way of the Occupy movement. When you say Occupy movement, it's like, oh yeah, didn't that happen like seven years ago? Like for a year, people sat in a park and they just kind of like, you know, and then it disappeared and everyone went home and it was kind of over. No, it's not over. The Occupy movement gave us Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders gave us the rebirth of progressivism in America. Bernie Sanders gave us the rebirth of socialism as a topic, do you, do you know that when Bernie Sanders was running in his campaign, they did some kind of a, a, a algorithm, and the most searched after word on Google was socialism, right? People say, socialism, what's that, right? So I think many of these students, for many of these students, they were in high school during the Occupy movement, right? This, in a certain sense, what they're, you know, when they look back, in terms of their proximate past as a generation, they're looking back to the 60s. They're looking back to the counterculture. They're looking back to the student movement. They're looking back to the anti-war protests. Right? That's their model. So I think one of the things that we're finding is that there is a rebirth of radicalism. You know, radicalism, I mean, we all remember that. It used to be a badge of honor to be called a radical back in the 60s. And then suddenly, Reagan kind of destroyed that, and being a radical now is considered to be an, a, a, a derogatory term, right? I think that, 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 that the new generation of people are starting to rethink radical politics. Now, radical politics, it's, one of the things that's good about it is that there's an enthusiasm, there's a devotion, there's a commitment. One of the things that's bad about it is that it tends to be rigid, right? And lines tend to be drawn very, very sharply. And I think that's kind of the struggle of, of, of what's happening with a, lot of, with a lot of these people and, and, and the divisiveness that's happening in the country, but I'm more interested now kind of in the Jewish community, is really along those lines. That people that are committed to progressive politics, whether it's be fighting for labor unions or migrant workers or, you know, or, or against, uh, you know, or healthcare reform, if they want a community that they can identify with, who are fighting for those issues, it's a progressive community that's anti-Israel. That's the community, right? It's people of color, right? Now, once they get into that, it becomes very complicated for them because many of them feel like, oh, if I want to be progressive here, I also have to be anti-Israel. And if they come out to be pro-Israel, they're marginalized from the, from the progressive community, right? So it, they, many of those people find that they have to make choices. Now, what's more important to them? Fighting for progressive issues in America, which would make them 
kind of would put them in the company of people that people of people that are anti-Israel. Black Lives Matter, for example, is a perfect example. Or do I actually stay with the kind of more pro-Israel community who actually are not progressive on all of those issues? So now that's not clear cut, but I think that's part of that's part of the that's part of the breach that it, that that our student, our children and grandchildren are finding themselves oh, in. Yeah, yes. And, and that's exactly yeah. what my brother and I, when we get on the phone, if we end up, we talk to each other and say, if we're talking to somebody on the left, you know, we feel duty bound to defend Israel. Yeah. Right. No matter what, we talk to somebody on the right, and we talk about more. Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I do, I, but I want, I want. And so I'm not comfortable in either camp. Yeah. No, I know, and a lot of people. But I, I, I want to get to your question. You know, if we were sitting around in the 1860s in some salon in Berlin, and we were going to talk about the burning issues of the day as Jews, right? What would we be fighting about? Biblical criticism. Did God really write the Bible, right? Or should the liturgy be in German or in Hebrew? Or, you know, some other kind of ritual progression, some kind of, right, reform Judaism, that was what was happening, right? Religious reform, people started to actually think about changing the law and changing the way things happened in the synagogue, right? Do we have women, women in the balcony? Do we have, they were all separate at that time, but do we have women in the balcony? Like, those were the burning issues. People were, people were tearing themselves apart about those issues, right? Who cares about that anymore? In America, nobody's no. There are no people sitting around in America in a synagogue fighting those fights, because I don't think religion really, in some way, in some way, and I, and I say this respectfully to, to, to you know respectfully to most American Jews, religion doesn't really matter anymore. They do what they do. They don't do what they don't do. They have the customs that they have, and they don't really think about it that much, right? So the big thing that happened, what was the big explosive thing that happened in, in, religious, in religious custom in the last decade? The conservative movement came out and said that conservative Jews can eat kitniot on Pesach. Right? Oh, my God. Nobody even cared about it. First of all, most conservative Jews ate kitniot on Pesach anyway. Some of them ate bread on Pesach. But the point is, is that, that you know, though these kinds of burning issues or, or, the, or the admittance of gay and lesbian rabbinical students, right? That they were all paper tigers. Everyone thought, when I was teaching at the Jewish Theological Seminary and they were making this decision about gay and lesbian rabbis, the, 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 you know, the heads of the institution said, this is going to tear the conservative movement apart. They did it anyway. What happened? Everyone woke up the next morning. Nobody cared. Because I think, as you rightly say, like, the issues that we care about are the issues that we're arguing about here. That's what gets us exercised. You want to get Jews to fight? Just say the word Israel. Right. Don't talk about whether God wrote the Bible. Don't talk about, you know, the ritual reform. Don't talk about, you know... I don't, I don't say this judgmentally. That's where we are. Right? That's where we are as a people in 2017. We can, I think we should own that. And also, and be able to have the conversation the way we were able to have the conversation today. But we should own that, and we should say, okay, this is where we are, but let's really kind of examine it. Like, why do we care about anti-Semitism so much? Why do we care about Israel so much? If we really care that much about that country that we choose not to live in, 
I mean, that's what we're fighting about. We're fighting about a country that we choose not to live in. Any one of us could get up tomorrow, probably, and move to Israel, if we really wanted to, right? I mean, there were Jews in Europe that walked to Israel, right? We just got out, we buy a ticket, we sell our house, we buy another apartment, or we keep our house and rent it. And buy it. We can do it if we want to. Yeah, we complicate it, we'd have to leave our grandchildren. Okay, there's a price for everything. We don't do it. And that's perfectly legitimate. But then let's think about what, why it matters so much. Well, I, I, I think it's important that the anti-Semitism, again, is the same thing. Yeah. I don't think it's the same thing. The reason the Jews back then were talking about that is because now we're living from the results of their conversations. Now we have diversity and choice. So you know what, so you know what an Israeli on the left would say? They would say, respectfully, do me a favor. Don't support my government because you want to have, to place, have a place to go if you need to. Right? I'm living in that country, and that country is tearing itself apart on this issue, and you're going to support it because just in case there's anti-Semitism in America. The, so the, so the, the, left, the left-wing Israeli would say, don't support us for that reason. No, there are some Israelis who would say that, and then the answer would be that if we weren't here supporting you and getting, having people vote for you and get all that aid for you, then you're not appreciating enough what the American Jewish community is doing. So yeah, listen, by the way, I personally think that the sacrifice they're making is way, way more than anybody here is, okay? It's, um, it's, and, and, and hopefully people are appreciating what they're doing, but we're playing a really important part, and we're doing it not just because we were told to. We we're doing it because we know history, and it, that's why Israel's, that's the, the reason Israel's there. Otherwise, we don't need a country. We okay. don't need a country. We live all over the world. Right. So there's a reason for it. So I, the, some of the things you're saying, I. I love diversity of opinions and ideas and everything like that, but if you're making arguments on things, there has to be the, all the information there that you're basing it on. Okay, I hear you. Yeah. But so you had a question. I just want to give you the last. You're going to get the last word. Oh, me? Yes. <laughs> okay. Historically, Jews are responsible for all other Jews. That's a part of our tradition. Right. The fact that Jews use the term occupation when they're talking about where Israel stands as far as all the nations around them. Really disturbs me because the places that they are that's beyond those that they gave up were all because of a war that they didn't start. And they are not occupying. They are there, but they are not occupying. And the other thing is, that we concentrate more on that and the negative and the fence that people call a wall, which has protected them from thousands and thousands of missiles that could have hit them. But we should be concentrating on what they have contributed to the world in technology, in medicine, in, in all these marvelous contributions and startup companies that are more successful in Israel than they are anywhere else in the world. 
We should be concentrating on that. Unfortunately, Israel has a terrible PR system. Yeah. And they don't let the world know how we should be, we should bow down to them and, and thank them for what they're contributing to the world. And, and when I hear people say occupation, I just cringe because we have to remember where the, the whole system came from of their being where they are. They're not occupying anybody. They're living. Okay. I see we've all of our disagreements. We've done our job well. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.